And I would say, I don't think you can find anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, that talks about conscious suffering going on forever. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. It blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 64. I interview John Stackhouse about hell. He answers the question, is hell a place for conscious eternal torment? We take a look at what scripture has to say about it, Christ's justification on the cross, the concept of the second death, and much more. So with no further ado, let's get weird. Thank you for coming on. Uh, welcome. Uh, why don't we just start just by hearing a little bit uh, of your background, how you grew up, and how you came to know Christ. I was raised in Northern Ontario. I spent a little bit of my boyhood in Britain, but otherwise was born and raised in Ontario, Canada, and uh, had a fairly traditional upbringing as we measure those kinds of things in middle-class Anglo-Canada. Dad was a physician uh, and a church elder. Mom had trained as a school teacher, found out she didn't really like kids, so she had a few of her own to get out of that and uh, became kind of Mrs. Elder in our church, so very busy in that little congregation. And uh, I grew up the eldest of four kids and, you know, played sports and made music and uh, otherwise had a paper route and had a pretty traditional childhood in a pretty traditional Protestant church. But the church was pretty serious about Jesus and about the Bible. We also were pretty serious about evangelism, about the task of trying to bring uh, the good news of God's work in Jesus Christ to our friends and neighbors. We weren't very good at it. We were serious about it, but we were pretty weird. We were, we were a strange little group, and we, we didn't really know how to share the gospel. Sometimes I tell the story of how we would invent uh, clever little devices to bring Jesus into conversations, hmm. whether he wanted to join them or not. Uh, right. We would say things like, hey, did you see the hockey game last night? And somebody would say, yeah, I, I did. did. you see that last goal? Yeah, that was quite a good goal. Does your life have a goal? Right. This is the kind of thing that uh, just kind of makes people not want to go any further in the conversation. Yeah. So we were serious about the Lord. We were serious about the Bible. I'm very grateful for that. But what we really had trouble with was connecting to people who weren't just like us. And I've spent a fair bit of my time since then, uh, knowing Jesus really my whole life, um, trying to find ways in which I can authentically be devoted to Jesus and not to compromise where I shouldn't. But at the same time, to try to learn how Jesus could be so comfortable with all kinds of people and they could be comfortable with him even as he was telling them some pretty hard and important things. Mm -hmm. So I've been on a bit of a quest to try to do that uh, the rest of my life. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, so today we're going to be talking about hell. Uh, I actually found out, um, actually I read your, I guess, essay in Zondervan's, they do like a, a counterpart series for anyone who's not familiar. And they did a, they have all, all different books, all different topics that they cover. Uh, so I read the, you know, I was a little bit familiar with this 
um, what's often dubbed as an annihilate annihilationism um, with this um, idea of hell not being eternal torment. And so I read that, uh, I, you know, I read your essay in the book, which is really neat because uh, you, you'll, you'll, I think maybe there's like three different um, views in, in this particular book. And so every author gives their take and then the author gets to respond uh, to, to each other's takes, which is, which is sort of neat. But I thought you really presented um, your case very well um, and uh, it was quite convincing. So um, why don't we start maybe, uh, do you adhere to that, the title of, of Annihilationism? Well, I think there are, as you say, Samuel, three main views when it comes to the destiny of those who are not uh, believers in Jesus and who have not been saved by his work. Uh, one of those views uh, is, well, really there's two. There's two and then there's three. So there's two in the sense that there's hell uh, at, as a place uh, of final punishment, and that's that. Or there's universalism, which in a variety of ways says that hell isn't the final answer. Whatever hell is, uh, whatever kind of negative experience might await some people, at least after death, uh, universalists will say that God ultimately gets his way. God wants everyone to be saved. And so everyone eventually, however long it takes, will be persuaded by the Holy Spirit to come to faith, and ultimately everybody will be saved. That's not a view that any significant church body has ever embraced. It's not a view that any major theologian has ever embraced. The closest I can think of as a, of a major theologian getting in the neighborhood of that would be Karl Barth, the 20th century Swiss-German theologian, and even he just kind of hoped for it or hinted at it. Hmm. And so it's, it's not... Uh, it's not a view that's that's held in the mainstream of Christianity, even though lots of individuals, including lots sure. of people today, like to hold to it. So the real argument among people who are serious about the Bible and who are serious about the Christian tradition is between the majority of people, actually, in church history, who would say that hell is a place of, as you say, eternal torment. It's a place of unending conscious pain suffering in which people writhe forever. The minority view, which is the one I've become convinced of by reading scripture, is what we call, well, several names. The idea is that at the last judgment, when everyone's resurrected, those whose names are written in the book of life, as Revelation says, go on to earth 2.0. They get to go with Jesus to the new Jerusalem and the new planet. Those whose names are not in the book of life, have their sins recorded in other books, and those books are opened. And then everybody's sins, presumably, are judged according to what's been recorded by God's infallible means. And the view that I hold says that everyone then receives the suffering that they are due, the suffering that Jesus underwent on behalf of everyone, and the death that Jesus underwent on behalf of everyone. But if you don't make yourself available to Jesus, and you don't take to yourself the salvation that Jesus has won for you, then you suffer and die for your own sins. What I've become convinced of is that the second death, whatever it means in Revelation 20, the second death uh, doesn't mean not dying. 
it, it has to mean death. It has to mean a termination. So at the same time, the lake of fire is obviously a pretty fearsome idea, a place of overwhelming judgment and a place where things, as it were, burn and then they burn up. And so the sense is here that one undergoes punishment, but that it's terminal. One comes to the end of that when you have paid for your sins. That's why I prefer the term terminal punishment. Now, the, the, this group, and I'll just tell you what you already, in a sense, know, there are two more popular names for this view, which I think are unfortunate. One is annihilationism. This is the idea that God, at the end of somebody's deserved suffering, annihilates them. I think that's an, an unhappy term because God doesn't have to actually extinguish anybody. It's just that people come to the end of their rope, so to speak, and God simply doesn't will for them to keep living. Nobody is immortal, only God. And so we suffer, and then we simply cease to exist. God doesn't have to annihilate anybody by some kind of violent action. The other term that's often used is conditionalism or conditional immortality. And that, to me, is correct, but it's off target, because conditional immortality, the idea that only some human beings are immortal, live forever, that really has to do with the saved. But we're talking about the lost. Right. So I don't find either of those terms helpful. Hence, terminal punishment seems to me to be a better way to talk about this view. Gotcha. Yeah. Like I said, that was uh, how you had uh, referred to it in the book, but as far as identifying yourself with this view um you know it's it's nice to have like a, a one word say i'm i'm an annihilationist um so I, but i didn't know how you felt about that term so you've cleared that up um so let's uh you've already you already mentioned the second death and so um and i think that's the the strength of this view and that's the position that it is pretty simple and clear in scripture that the punishment for a non-believer is death, uh, and, and it's that simple. So, um, but let's start with just talking about you know what is hell and, and what what is it not. Yes, and I think that when Jesus describes what he himself is going to experience at the hands of the religious leaders of his day, uh, the powerful of his day. It's interesting that he doesn't say, I'm going to be killed. He says, I'm, the Son of Man is going to suffer. And sometimes he doesn't even say die. And sometimes he says, suffer and die. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's important, right? because I think what, what makes people nervous is they think of hell as, in this view, as a kind of blast furnace that as soon as you're put into it, you wink out of existence. You know, it's instant death. Now, there mm -hmm. are some people who think that. I just don't think they're right about that. I think what we see when Jesus talks about hell because in the Old Testament, death is a more shadowy uh, kind of nether place. The, the idea of the Hebrew Sheol isn't really in focus in the Old Testament at all. But by the time that the curtain opens on the New Testament, hell is seen to be this place in which what is bad in the world is extracted from the world and then relegated or sequestered in this horrible other place, like, a, like the dump on, uh, uh, beyond the city limits. It, it's taken away from what's good, taken away from the city of God, and it is then uh, extinguished. It's then removed 
from, as it were, the ecosystem, we might say. So it's a place, in other words, hell is the place of removal. It's the place of judgment, because you're only removed there because you're judged to be refuse, so to speak. Anything mm -hmm. there is, is there because it's, it's garbage, it's bad, it's pollution. And then it's destroyed. Um, and fire, of course, is the way in the ancient world and mostly today that we get rid of things that we don't like. So those three things come together, a place of judgment, a place of removal, and a place of uh, extinction uh, all go together, I think, in the biblical understanding of hell. Sure. Yeah, and I think that matches the, the imagery and the concept of, of fire is mm -hmm. that when something is in fire, it's burnt up and it ceases to exist. Um, we don't really have a concept of something burning eternally or just no. like it, or, or it's um, because what we know of fire today is you throw it in the fire and, and it's gone eventually. Um, well, interestingly, that's that's an interesting point you make, because in Scripture, we we do have an eternal fire. First, we have, of course, Moses encountering God. Uh, in the burning bush, the bush that burns but isn't fully consumed. And then the only other time we come across fires that don't burn out are fires that are symbolically linked to God's own purity, God's mm -hmm. own judgment. Those fires burn forever. I think mm -hmm. it's important, and I'm glad you raised this, Samuel, because there are verses it, that, that confuse my friends who believe in eternal torment, they confuse the eternality of the fire right. with eternality of burning. So God's fire, God's wrath against sin, God's intolerance of anything wicked, that burns forever. God's always like that. But anything that gets close to that burns a while and then is consumed because nothing else lasts forever except mm. God himself. Mm. Yeah, and that was actually a question that I had for you Um that, as you said, it might be confusing because it's clear that the the fire is eternal. The fire is never ending. So the question is that you know, if 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 everything's burnt up, why is there a need for it to continue burning? So would you say that's because mm -hmm. because God Himself is eternal? That's right. Because the the fire image there, the 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 fire itself, the flame itself is the fury of God against what militates against God's good creation. Mm -hmm. I sometimes say tongue-in-cheek that God is the only non-neurotic perfectionist in mm -hmm. the universe, right? He really likes things to be the way they're supposed to be, and yeah. he insists that in his universe, everything the way it's supposed to be. God is wonderfully patient, but he's not infinitely patient. God will put up with things for a while, but the Bible tells us he is not infinitely patient. Eventually, his patience comes to an end, and he, so to speak, swoops down like an eagle and, and grabs what's wrong, takes it away, and deals with it. And God's, God's uh, in a sense, everything God is, God is all the time. Um, God isn't wrathful and then loving. God's not in a bad mood, and then he's in a good mood. You know, he's not angry with us, and then he's loving to us. God always loves us. But he's also always fierce about, mm. about what's right. bad. That's why Paul can always talk about the righteousness of God is revealed in the act of salvation. Every bit as much as he'll talk about the love of God is revealed in salvation. So God's mm. fire against sin burns all the time. Yeah. Okay. So my next question, that I'm sure as many listeners and probably 
probably the easiest way to refute this, and I think probably the biggest reason why um, this isn't the um, widely accepted view is because we see verses that clearly allude to eternal torment, and sometimes we see those words um, and phrases coupled together. So what do you do um, about, about that? Well, I firstly say I dispute the premise. As we say in philosophical circles, I don't think we see eternal torment anywhere. I think that that phrase is a theological phrase that's made up by the people who hold that view. Nothing wrong with that. Terminal punishment doesn't appear in the Bible either. I made that up. Um, and, uh, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity, I think, is soundly biblical, but the word Trinitas doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. What then we need to do is to search the Scriptures carefully and see, okay, now what does show up? And in the work particularly of the late biblical scholar Edward Fudge, we see in his book, The Fire That Consumes, a pretty exhaustive treatment of everywhere in the Bible hmm. and in early Christian literature that hell or punishment is talked about. Now, you're correct to say that eternal and punishment come together. But I do believe in eternal punishment. The statement of faith of the university that I teach at here in Eastern Canada, uh, Crandall University, its statement of faith and the statement of the Baptist denomination that owns our university speaks about eternal blessing and eternal punishment. I absolutely believe that's true. The punishment is eternal. That is to say, the effects of it are eternal. There is no escape from it. I don't believe that universalism is an option. I don't think that it's temporary and then you, everybody gets to go to heaven. It's just that if you're dead, you're dead forever. So your right. punishment is eternal. Um, what my friends on the other side of this debate would suggest is that the pain, the conscious suffering lasts forever. And I would say, I don't think you can find anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture that talks about conscious suffering going on forever. The closest thing we have to that is the devil is talked about being tormented uh, day and mm -hmm. night. Um, but it doesn't actually say that any humans suffer that. And it's not even clear to me that this one, maybe two, but I think it's just one instance in scripture in Revelation where the devil is tormented. And, and I think the devil and the Antichrist and his, you know, his buddies are tormented day and night. Um, isn't just a figure of speech for it. They're, they're tormented. They get their just desserts and they're off the scene. You know, they, they leave the stage. You know, Shakespeare would say, exunt, you know, they're, they're gone, uh, never to be heard from again. But when it comes to human beings, uh, I actually don't think we ever see that. What we see are figures of speech, like the smoke goes up forever or the, you know, the worm will never cease eating the corpses, but the corpses, you know, and the smoke is of something that's been burned up. So I still don't see anything except some easy to explain metaphors that support my friend's view on the other side of this. I gotcha. I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Um, sure. Because, you know, if, if you do compare, you know, verses that support either view, you're going to see a lot on one side, um, on the traditional side that are going to say things like you, like you mentioned, eternal punishment. Um, 
and so like you said if the punishment is death that's ongoing forever um the one the one verse that i feel like that you, you already alluded to um as referring to just the the beast i'm gonna go ahead and read that because i think that could be for a lot of people that's like the achilles hill that's the one um that that does seem to allude that uh that there is conscious torment um it says they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the lamb of course and i guess i didn't mention the verse it's actually revelation 14 this is 10 and 11 um and the smoke of the torment will rise forever and ever as you mentioned the smoke is what's rising forever and ever referring to the the burning that's ongoing uh, but then it says there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image and that's referring i'm assuming to human people that are worshiping the beast and for anyone who receives the mark of his name uh, so what do you say to that well it won't be right because in the bible rest has a very powerful meaning it doesn't just mean there won't be any relief in some general sense this is the language of sabbath hmm. there'll be no rest there'll be no coming hmm. home there'll be no sabbath rest for the people of god they hmm. have decided instead to cast their allegiance on the wrong side and so there'll be no rest for them sure yeah i got you yeah so what is it's not saying just because they're not getting any rest doesn't mean that they're consciously being uh tormented yeah that's yeah, we saying. even talk about rest and peace like there's different kinds of rest right um even, even when we speak about death but the kind mm. of death that is imagined for the enemies of God, there's nothing restful about it. Sure, the yeah. Extinction is a zero, whereas we think of rest as a positive thing. It's good to have a rest. I had a good rest. You know, we, we talk about that as a positive thing. There's nothing positive about the fate of those or the destiny of those who have opposed God. Yeah, I gotcha. Absolutely. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So one of the, I feel like the strongest arguments that you had in your essay um was a finite punishment at the cross can you talk about that yes i think we are of course in among the deepest of deep theological waters here when we try to understand what was jesus experiencing on our behalf what does it mean for god the father to make this innocent one sin on behalf of all the rest of us there's lots of ways of of of, of putting a foot wrong here. And that's where theology can help us. We, we can't possibly fully understand what Jesus underwent, but we can at least try to avoid saying wrong things about what goes on uh, with Jesus when he is suffering on behalf of everyone. So the first thing I'll say is to repeat something I said earlier, that when Jesus talks about what's coming up for him at the end of his career, it's not simply death. So we have to be careful about just saying that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He did, but he talks about suffering and dying for mm. us. We speak of Holy Week as the passion of Jesus. And passion, which nowadays we tend to associate with sports, you know, he's passionate about his golf game or passion in terms of romantic or sexual passion. Passion originally means suffering. Mm. It actually means to suffer. So the passion of the Christ, as in Mel Gibson's famous movie, is about the suffering of Jesus, not just the death of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just walk up to the Romans and the Jews and say, okay, here I am, and they cut him down with a kind of quick chop to the throat, and he's yeah. done. It's, it's extended. The, the, the pattern uh, and, and the program that Jesus undergoes between Gethsemane and the time he's taken off the cross in Calvary is miserable, right? It's, it's shame. It's uh, 
the kind of ostracism from his world of Jews, his beating and his uh, torment by the Romans. Uh, and the crucifixion itself is not a primarily a method of execution. Uh, getting your head chopped off, that's execution. The guillotine, yeah, that's execution. The electric chair, that's execution. Even hanging, if it's done properly, snaps the neck and you're done. Crucifixion was devised by the Romans as a torture device to embarrass people, to show the rest of everyone else who saw these poor guys writhing on crosses. This is what happens when Rome finally loses its patience with you. We're going to crucify. you are going to put you up on a cross where you're not going to die, probably for a few days if you're in pretty good health, because you only die on the cross when you're so exhausted that you can no longer mm. push yourself up to keep breathing. The, the hanging on a cross screws up the diaphragm and the, the nervous system so that you literally asphyxiate on the cross. That's why they were surprised that Jesus was already dead, even though he'd been up there for six awful hours because the other guys weren't, you know, yeah. they're still going. So I don't mean to dwell on this in some kind of macabre way, but it's important to see that Jesus suffers for us and then dies for us. He literally undergoes the path that we are on and we are going to face unless we let him rescue us. It's suffering and dying. And that's the, to me, the kind of universal intuition. We see this in religions around the world, that when you break a taboo, when you offend the gods, when you transgress against the universe, suffering and pain is the way you're going to make up for that. You're going to suffer loss and you may, in fact, suffer worse than that in actual physical or, or you know, some kind of experienced pain. And that's true for the Jews, too. So this intuition is carried out in that Jesus suffers and dies for us. But of course, I think, of course, uh, a mortal uh, who has a limited life can only get up to so much mischief in one lifetime. There's only so much sin that mm -hmm. you can accomplish, even if you're a pretty horrible sinner, you know, pick your favorite baddie, right? You know, Hitler, yeah. Stalin, Mao, whoever, as awful as they were, they finally died. And that was the end of their account, so to speak. You know, yeah. all of those things are written in the books. That's the end of their entry. So given enough time, they presumably would suffer through the consequences of that until they're done. And anything beyond that would be literally gratuitous. It would be mm. unfair. It would be right. unjust. And God isn't unjust. Now, my friends on the other side of this debate will say, okay, well, what God does is extend everybody's suffering infinitely, but really bad people have a lot of suffering infinitely. Not so bad people have a little bit of suffering infinitely, but they're playing around with infinitude. I mean, I did enough math to know that Infinity just means that. It means it's never-ending. You can have as small an amount of suffering. If it's infinite, it's infinite. Yeah. So even a tiny bit of suffering forever is more than anyone can get up to in a finite lifetime. So I think it literally yeah, doesn't yeah. make sense to think that yeah. way, whereas I think our view does make sense. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean... For me, uh, I had never heard that argument before. I, before I read what you wrote about it, um, but but we saw, you know, a you know a finite amount of, of punishment that was taken at the cross 
for, and, and of course that's that's justification, that's the doctrine of justification, is that we are justified by Christ. And we see that, that he did not, he's not still suffering, right? He's not, yes. like, the concept that, if I'm understanding this correctly, the concept that we need to suffer eternally, ongoing forever, um, if for, in order for someone to substitute and take our place, that that person would need to then suffer forever. So, um, in that sense, it, it really it doesn't doesn't make sense for if if our concept is that the punishment is eternal conscious suffering and he took our punishment yet it wasn't eternal conscious suffering there's there's a discrepancy there so yes um, i think that's well said samuel and i think that it's really interesting that when jesus from the cross cries out it is finished hmm. tetelestai in the greek is literally the kind of word that you'd write at the end of an account in a business ledger paid in full to Telestai, this has come to an end. We're done. So I think you're, you nicely underline that for us. Sometimes my friends on the other side will, will say, yes, but Jesus is God, so he can suffer infinitely. And I'd say, you're playing around with infinitude, like you're using uh, infinity in a loose way. If we do this carefully, philosophically and mathematically, you can't just bring infinity into the equation. Infinity actually buggers up a lot of equations and mathematicians generally don't like dealing with it if they don't have to. Um, because you, you're, you're trading concepts here of, of infinity as a quantitative concept with infinity as a qualitative concept. God is infinitely good. Like there's no limit to God's goodness. That's true, right? God's infinitely powerful. No limit to God's power except his own goodness. Yep, that's true. But those are qualitative concepts. The idea of an infinity of publishment is a quantitative concept. And Jesus does say, as you point out, Samuel, it's finished. It's done. It's over. You simply can't then talk about how an infinity, quantitatively, of suffering can be paid in a finite amount of time, which Jesus does. Yeah. Yes, my next question, I'm curious to hear your take on this, because I found this to be true for myself, and I imagine you've you've heard this from others as well. Um, this was so difficult for me to wrap my head around. It was to the point where I first heard it, immediately I thought, this is, this is heresy, this is heretical. And then, once upon hearing it and looking at the scriptures, even looking at, uh, you know, what, what Jesus said, fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell there's there's a second death um there's so much that's clearly laid out in scripture where you can make a very strong case for this yet there's something within me and i think what it is it's 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 the fact that traditionally this is 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 not been the view of the church so most churches are not going to be holding to this view um and that's what i found is probably Obviously, I want to. I want to try to look at Scripture, and I, I, I don't want to try to bend, you know, part of it too, because my my sensibilities is, you know, this also appeals to my sensibilities because I don't, I don't think anyone likes the idea of someone having to be tormented forever and ever. So of course, the idea of there being a finite amount of punishment does appeal to our sensibilities. So, 
maybe both of those things might be a reason why someone would not accept this view. Um, has that been your experience is why people you feel like just can't accept what seems to be clear in scripture? Well, I think we've got a couple of things that are interesting, what you've said there, at least a couple. One is that some of my friends on the more traditional side of things, um, on the on the majority view, although I, I got to be careful about saying the traditional side of things, because this minority view that I'm suggesting goes right back to the early church. It's mm -hmm. not a modern view. It's not a recent view. It's just a minority view, which is right. not what's, what's generally uh, taught by most people. And friends of mine, if they're in an argumentative mood, will say, aha, caught you. It's not held by the majority of Christians. And I would say, yes, but you're not a Roman Catholic, are you? And the majority of mm -hmm. Christians are Roman Catholics. And you don't happen to believe that bishops should rule the church, do you? But all Catholics and all Orthodox and all Anglicans and most Methodists and all Lutherans, they all believe that bishops should dominate the church. And you don't happen to believe in the baptism of infants, do you? But the vast majority of Christians through Christian history have believed in, in, in infant baptism. So mm. as a Protestant myself, I'm respectful of the tradition of the church. I think it's very important to respect the views of our elders. But I'm pretty Protestant in the sense that I think it has to be searched by Scripture. And I think that just because we've held the view for a long time, doesn't mean we should keep holding it if it's not a good idea. I mean, yeah, the, yeah. the sooner we change our minds about certain things, uh, the better. For instance, um, a thousand years ago, the great uh, Italian and Parisian theologian, Thomas Aquinas, um, Thomas was from Italy, but did most of his work at the University of Paris. Um, Thomas is one of the smartest people in the history of the church, way smarter than I am, and, and almost certainly way more godly than I am. Uh, as much as we can know about such things. Uh, Thomas, it seems to me, ties himself in knots trying to talk about eternal torment and squaring that with what he calls the blessedness or the beatitude of the saved with God in the world to come. He's mm -hmm. basically saying, how can we feel so happy in the world to come knowing that people we loved are writhing forever in torment and will never get out. Thomas tries to explain that. And he talks about the consolation of the Holy Spirit and a couple of other, to me, desperate devices to try to explain that because it's a horrible concept. And mm -hmm. Thomas just should have said, you know what, this is just a bad idea. I got to go back and think about this some more because he never mm -hmm. really does make sense. When somebody as smart as Thomas Aquinas has trouble defending a view, maybe the problem is not Thomas. Maybe it's the view. So, so my sense is that, yeah, we, we do want to be careful, absolutely, we want to be careful about surrendering orthodox views because they're unfashionable or because people don't particularly like them. I, I earned my PhD at the University of Chicago, Divinity School, a, a well-known center for liberal theology. I wanted to find out how they thought about things having done my previous theological training at an evangelical school at Wheaton College. So I found it really, really interesting to study liberal mainline theology from people who really believed it and who taught yeah. it really clearly. Right. But I wasn't persuaded by it. I, I just am on my guard against it. So I'm sympathetic with that worry. But as I say, just because we've been teaching something a long time doesn't mean we should keep teaching it. We need to do what the Bible says. And if a change is necessary, Let's make the change. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that, you know, from the Protestant view. I mean, Scripture alone to, you know, really... And, and when I when I go to the Scripture, I'm looking at it, it really is... Um, it's hard to defend the, the traditional view um, in, in light of so much Scripture that seems to, to hold exactly what you're saying, that that the wages of sin is death. And we can sort of wiggle away around that. And I actually have some, you know, another uh, objection that I kind of found to that second death, because that's, it's such a strong imagery when we, when we have eternal life as a gift. And then we can um, look on the other side of that is eternal death, right? Because um, if there's eternal punishment, essentially we have really life on, on both sides yeah. of Christ. One is just, yeah. one is just, like a good abundant life and one's just suffering. Yeah. Um, so it really makes more sense to say we have a, a ter- actual eternal life is actually a gift. And if you don't have that gift, then you don't get it. You die. That's right. Um, anyway, so I, I looked into this, this idea of second death and try to, you know, see what objection there could be of, of another way of looking at death. Cause death seems to be so clear when we talk about second death. Okay. The, the body physically dies. And what I'm, what seems to be plain about second death is that there will be a time when the soul will die. Um, and uh, what we know about death is to, to be no more, right? It's done. It's over. Um, so and one objection I got uh, when looking at second death from the traditional view was that death isn't necessarily ceasing to exist, but death is separation. So when we die physically, the soul is separated from the body and then, so I guess the argument there is, uh, is the the same is true in the second death that the soul is separated from God. And so, a verse that would back that up would be Ephesians two four through five. But God, who in his, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So in that verse, we 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 see that they're referring to being previously dead as your soul was dead before you knew Christ. And so the same concept would apply um, in the afterlife, whereas you're to, to be dead would be separated from Christ. What do you, what do you say to that argument? Well, there's two kinds of separation you're talking about there. One is the soul separating from the body mm-hmm. and the other is the soul separated from God, right? So let's, let's Correct. be clear that we're talking about two things right yep. now. Secondly, um, so if we take if we take the first uh, idea of the soul being separated from the body, we do believe that everyone, the Bible says, will be resurrected. So whatever is the temporary case, whatever is the situation be the, between the time people die and the second coming of Jesus, what theologians call the intermediate state. You know, I die here, Jesus comes back, I'm then resurrected here. Most people believe that the soul and the body separate, and the soul perhaps goes to be with Jesus and the saints, and then we're resurrected at the end. A minority view would say, actually, no, we just conk out, and we know there is no existence without right. our body because we're humans. So then we start here. Either way, uh, that, that's a whole, that, that's another conversation for another time. Yeah. Either way, Orthodox people believe that, as the Bible says, there is a resurre- a general resurrection. Everybody stands literally in a body, stands before God. And the books are open. So, yes, death means different things in the Bible. 
but it means different things in the Bible. So all we can say then about that is that every context needs to be taken seriously so we know what we're talking about. What we can't do is take a death definition two, and when it's convenient for us, say that over here, that's what death means. Well, no, it's death. that's death definition two over here. Over here, it's death definition one. Over here, it's death definition number three. Which one is it over here? You can't just cherry pick the one you want and say that's what it has to be because that's convenient for my purposes. When God mm -hmm. says to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die, and they don't drop dead in the garden, clearly that's not what death means in that situation. It means something else. Whereas when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and Peter calls them out on it in Acts, they drop dead, you know, and the young men come in and carry them out. That's what we mean by physical death. So death does mean different things in Scripture. Um, but you know what it doesn't mean is live forever. <laughs> you know, among all those different definitions of death, none of them mean, yeah, you live forever. Um, it, it actually means you're separated from the source of life and goodness, including that Ephesians passage. We're in the kingdom of death, the, the kingdom that ultimately ends in not life, right? There's mm -hmm. only one source of life and immortality, and that's the gospel through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is for us. It's, it's from the one source of life there is. If you're separated from that, God may graciously allow you a kind of shadowy existence, a kind of abnormal, rebellious existence in which you're in the kingdom of death and you're still alive, but you're in big peril. Like, you, you can't keep that up forever, because as we said, the wrath of God burns against anything like that, and that patience will run out. Eventually, mm -hmm. this is going to be done, and there's going to be only shalom, only flourishing and well-being in God's good world. So I don't think my friends uh, who argue for eternal torment can take any comfort from the fact that when death is talked about in some places in Scripture, it doesn't mean immediate ceasing to exist, because there's always that background meaning that eventually it will mm. cease to exist. Eventually, it will come under the final judgment of God, even if there is a sense in which Yes, metaphorically, you know, if you fall into a deep sleep, we sometimes say, ah, you know what, Samuel was so tired, he's dead to the world. No, we don't mean physically you're dead or we're calling the EMTs. We mean that you are, in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, dead to the world. The Bible yeah. should be allowed to be poetical when it's being poetical. But when it's being pretty literal, if we take literal exegesis seriously, which I think we should, then when it talks about the second death, what's the first death? Well, the first death is the death of this life. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's not referring to original separation from God. It's talking about physical termination. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that's a good point. You, you kind of have to jump through some hoops there and kind of redefine what we're talking about, death, instead of death being you're, you're no longer living and becomes you're separated. And um, I get that. Yeah, actually, one of the verses that uh, supported that that view that I that, um I just previously described uh, is in Second Thessalonians one nine says eternal destruction, um, which is a, a word that's it's hard to defend that view when you see words like destruction, mm -hmm. um, because that seems to be clear. If you're destroyed, um, that means you're. It's hard to say that you're you're you're. I guess, consciously ongoing. Anyway, so it says eternal destruction awaits those who are cast away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And, you know, from your view, what you're saying is that to be separated 
from God is 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 to cease to to live. He is the source of life, and as if if we're resurrected, then essentially we would have to be sustained. Our our life mm-hmm. source would have to be sustained if we were going to be eternally tormented, mm-hmm. and so that paints a different picture than you know. I think what what kind of comes with this traditional view is that you know we're we're eternal, therefore we're we're going to live forever no matter what. Is this whether we're going to live with God or, or or without God, and that's sort of the way it goes. But we have to then look at you know all the scriptures that talk about life, eternal life, specifically being uh, a, a gift for those that are in Christ. And in, in that sense, it, it's hard to juxtapose, you know, the opposite and say that well, you don't have the gift of eternal life; you have the gift of eternal conscious suffering. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I think part of what we have to ask ourselves is what does our theology imply about God? If mm -hmm. we believe this, whatever is true about this secondary question, what kind of God does there have to be for this to happen? I think that my friends who defend universalism, I think, are in danger, not always, but they're in danger of of making too little of God's wrath against sin. And frankly, they're making too little of the dignity of human choice. And they're making too little, particularly, of just how bad sin can be, just how adamant human beings can be against God. Uh, the only parallel we have, the only other species we know of that has the spiritual freedom that we humans have are the angels. And when we encounter evil spirits, in scripture there is no hint of their redemption they there's never any sense that satan and his minions are destined for anything but suffering and, and, and extinction so it does seem to be possible in fact we see that in the only other creatures we know there can be such a a, a furious established antipathy to god that it lasts forever. You know, it, 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 it can't be broken down. It, it isn't going to be turned around by the Holy Spirit, no matter what. So in the only other case we have, we do seem to see creatures who will be terminated in hell, cast into the lake of fire. So I think my universalist friends are on weaker footing when they say, well, eventually God's going to persuade everybody, or God's so wonderfully beautiful. I say, well, yes, God's wonderful. But how do you know that human beings who haven't really decided on a path of darkness aren't going to maintain that and they don't grow to become that the c.s lewis even hints that we simply lose our capacity for it we, we lose our hunger and thirst for righteousness we lose our interest in it and and only god turning us into something else can can make that happen so i don't think there's much hope there and instead i think we see that no that the gift of god is as you say the life of the age to come and if we don't have that, then we are left to ourselves. God doesn't have to annihilate us. God doesn't have to send us anywhere. He doesn't have to devise some kind of torture chamber. This is all stuff that I don't think we have to believe as Orthodox Christians. We simply have to believe that God is just, and he allows people to reap what they have sown if they will not cast themselves, ourselves, on his mercy. And if we reap what we've sown, that suffering and eventual death, because we have cut ourselves off from the only source of life there is.
Yeah. So I have a question. Um, Revelation, when it says death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, do you see that um, Hades being what the concept we have, some people think of, of, of as hell now, right? You die, you go to hell. It depends on how, how you really define that. But clearly, you, you mentioned the interme intermediate state. So there's some that aren't aren't going to be with, with Christ when they die. They're going to be separated in, in, in Hades, right? So do you see that as that holding place? Now that's being destroyed. Yeah. Now there's no longer really intermediate. It's New Jerusalem or it's the lake of fire. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The, the whole temporary system is being wrapped up. Yeah. And the world to come, the era to come, right? Aeonion, the Zoe Aeonion, the life of the era to come starts. And it's a picture of total shalom, of, of complete flourishing, as we see in the next chapters, Revelation 21, 22. Right, that the light of God is everywhere. There is no darkness, a symbol mm -hmm. of, of fear, uncertainty, where the predators lurk. There's no sea, which for somebody who's lived on both coasts of Canada, it's a bad thing. I like the ocean. But the but the Hebrews feared the ocean, right? They're they're they were a landlocked people. The Phoenicians were the sea people, the Hebrews were a landlocked people. And for them, the ocean is the symbol of chaos, what is not God's ordered world, which we see right back in Genesis 1 with all that yeah. frothing imagery in the first few chapters, uh, first few verses, I should say, of the Genesis story. So all that's bad, I think what we see in Revelation 21, 22, and I don't want to lean too hard on this, but it seems to me the picture is everything's the way it should be. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to say, except for this pocket over here where you've got millions of writhing souls in, you know, in, in agony forever. Like it doesn't, it doesn't seem coherent with that picture, yeah. nor with the kindness of God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's another, another huge strength, I think, in this view. Um, and as I kind of said, some people don't want to hold to it because they feel like they're, they're, they're trying to make scripture, you know, palatable to, to them. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe why, you know, they, they might say that you're, you're holding in this view just because this, this makes you feel good about God's justice or what, but it does, it does seem to, to hold to what we know as, as justice. It, it that's doesn't, right. it doesn't seem to be just to have, um, and you sort of mentioned there's this whole idea of those that are, those are really bad. And then those that aren't, aren't so bad there it's eternal for both that somehow we have to make it where it's it, it's eternal punishment but it's not as bad of an eternal punishment for something as others it's, it's kind of a um it, it definitely fits better with it, with this concept of, of justice um with it, with that being finite um mm -hmm. everybody and, gets their just desserts and then when you're done you're done i mean that that's not something that is a modern weak liberal view that's yeah. a pretty basic human intuition and it's confirmed by scripture that's what we see is that eye for an eye tooth for tooth this for that is sort of basic justice from both testaments yeah yeah absolutely um awesome yeah so i guess i'll invite you to have any uh closing thoughts on this um I don't know. Have you written anything else other than because I mentioned I read I, uh, I read the the Zoner of Counterparts book, uh, but have you written anything uh, else on this um, on your own? Well, this project of trying to understand hell better in a way that I think helps Christians, but also helps those who are trying to come to faith and trying to make their way to Jesus as they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. This 
project that I see you undertaking, Samuel, with your podcast and with me and my work of trying to explain this strange religion that we have. It mm -hmm. is a pretty strange religion. I think it's true. I think it fits a very strange world. Uh, in my most recent book, Can I Believe Christianity for the Hesitant? In mm -hmm. this book, I try to talk about some of these things. Um, what does a thoughtful person make of this very strange religion? We want to, at the same time, say that God doesn't let anybody away with anything, but he is gracious enough that he will take the punishment of the repentant on himself. That punishment is going to be meted out, but God is so kind that he will take it for us if we will get right with him and then let him make us right. right? He doesn't just take Hitler's punishment and let Hitler go skipping off to another garden party. No, the gospel means you come to Jesus and you let the Holy Spirit remake you into a Jesus-like person. So none of us actually get away easy. If you've been a Christian for more than about five minutes, you know that the path of faith is hard. You know the path of sanctification is demanding. Uh, God will tear us down and build us back up like the world's most dedicated coach so that we do become wonderful versions of ourselves, but it's a hard process. It just results in something so much better than the alternative that I signed up for it, and you have too. So in this book, you know, as I say, called Can I Believe?, I try to be honest with the kinds of doubts that my smart friends have and try mm -hmm. to say, yep, there are some hard things to believe here, but there are good reasons why 2 billion people think that this strange story is the best explanation there's ever been for anything. And so maybe some of your listeners would like to check out that book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll put links in the in the show description. But I didn't think about that. I mean, really, truly, I think this is something uh, I think they can keep maybe someone who's agnostic or who, who's a non-believer, we'll just say a non-believer, uh, keep them from accepting this faith in this, in this God, all loving God that would torment people forever. Um, and so I certainly think it, but once again, beyond all of our sensitivities, I think if you, what, what you've done is take a, an honest look at scripture and, and taking a look at what it actually says, and I, I really think this is the most honest way to look at, um, at at the majority of verses that we're looking at in hell. They they all seem to be pointing to yes, an eternal punishment, and that punishment is death. Yeah. Um, cool, awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to to, to talk through this view uh, and answer some objections to it. Um, and I think you did a great job. And like I said, you did you really made a great case for it um, in what I read from it. And so. Uh, I uh, really enjoyed talking to you today. Good to talk to you, Samuel. All right. Well, you close us out in prayer? Sure. Father, it's a big, difficult world, and the Bible's a big, difficult book that you give to help us understand these things. So I thank you for Samuel's work. I thank you for calling me to the work also of trying to make some harder things clearer. And help each of us, please, whatever our faith might be, to be honest about the evidence before us, and to try to listen to the voice of truth in our minds, because we know you are trying to draw us toward yourself and toward the light. And for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.